So some of you might recognise Timothy was here in October, I think, last year. Um, but for those of you who haven't met him, this is Timothy. And tell us, like, I don't know, a little bit about yourself. What do you do? What have you been up to? Sure. That sort of stuff. Uh, my name's Tim. I grew up in a small town called Geraldine, which is in South Canterbury. Uh, I did some study in America for about eight years. And then during the lockdowns and MIQ and stuff, came back to New Zealand. I'm, the long-term plan is to be a pastor. Um, but in the meantime, I've been doing a PhD in Dunedin, trying to become less weird and less American. And so if there's some American things you notice today, feel free to tell me about them. I'm trying to weed out all of those weird American things. So, um, what, yeah. what, like, what sort of weird American things have you ditched? Ah, uh, good question. You have to ask my Kiwi wife, oh, okay. Alana, um, how many American things we've had to get rid of. Okay. Um, oh, I don't know. Americans are pretty forward, so that's been helpful because, you know, it's quite, quite good to be friendly. Yeah. Um, sometimes you've got to be careful about how forward you are, you know, in New Zealand. Yeah. Okay, cool. And look, we're probably reasonably immersed in the American culture anyway with all the movies and stuff we've yep. got to. So anyway, Tim, we're grateful that you're here. How about I just pray for you yep. and um, you can crack on. Sounds great. God, thanks for this day and just bringing your people together to worship your name and to hear from you through your word. And we just pray for Tim as he opens that and just takes us to um, your son, Jesus, that we would be willing to hear and listen and put into practice the message that he calls us to. In your name, amen. Amen. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Just try to lift this up a little bit higher. There we go. Okay, so turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We're going to look at Mark's account of the Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. So turn with me in your Bibles, Mark chapter 11. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, no sweat. What you can do is just search it on Google on your phone and then it'll bring it up. Um, but my thought is, if you don't have a Bible, I wonder if it could be a good idea to forego an Easter egg this year and buy yourself a Bible. Uh, and you could read about Jesus and it would be a real Easter treat. I like Easter eggs, I just ordered some for me and my wife, but uh, Bibles are better, so I commend them to you. Uh, okay, so we're going to read God's Word together, and I'll just get my Bible to Mark chapter 11. Second here. Mark chapter 11. And we're going to start reading from verse 1, and we're going to read all the way to verse 33. Uh, I'm not going to read it much during the message, because we'll read it all now, um, but I want you guys to pay attention now, and so I'll read it as um, captivatingly as possible. Uh, So let's start Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied up, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And then those people let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road in front of him, and others spread out leaf branches, and they that they had cut from the fields. 
And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king, our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they had come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. And it was a season for figs, but there were no figs there. And he said to it, May never there be fruit on you again to eat. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying this, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes, when they, saw, when they heard this, they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared, because all of the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered what was said to him. And he said, Rabbi, look, the tree that you cursed has now withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. And then they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven, or was it from man? Answer me. And so the chief priests and the scribes and the elders discussed it with one another, saying, if we say it's from heaven, why then did we not believe in him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that Jesus was really a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. When I was younger, we had this wonderful kids' show called Teletubbies. <laughs> Teletubbies is a fantastic show, and it begins and ends with this lovely formula. There is a big shining sun, and inside the, the sun is the face of a baby. And at the start and end of every episode, the baby coos. Uh, the narrator announces at the start, over the hills and far away, Teletubbies come to play. And at the end of the episode, that same sun with the baby's face in it appears again and coos for a bit. And then there's this sort of pole that sticks up and announces, time for Tally Bye Bye. Time for Tally Bye Bye. 
And then the narrator farewells each of the four characters, each of the four Teletubbies. He says, bye-bye, Tinky Winky. Bye-bye, Dipsy. Bye-bye, La-La. Bye-bye, Poe. And if you've raised kids, you can see why this is quite an effective kind of strategy. You've got this long, drawn-out farewell so that the show can end well. And so concludes each day in the life of a Teletubby with the same formula. It was a fascinating show when I was two or three, and it's been etched on my mind, so much so that I thought of it when I was writing this sermon. We see in the Teletubbies a day in the life of the four Teletubbies. But we see in our passage three days in the life of Jesus, and each of them are marked with a formula. You can see that if you look in verses 11 and 12. As it was already late, he went out of Jerusalem, so there's evening. And on the following day, in the morning, they came from Bethany. And you can see that again in verses 19 and 20. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they found the fig tree. So you can see that there's sort of actually three entries into Jerusalem here. There's the first triumphal entry, and then Jesus staying in a town nearby in Bethany, maybe like someone might stay in Cromwell if they're going to run the marathon at Queenstown. I've done this before. You stay away from the town, maybe because the rent's cheaper or whatever it is, you can't find an Airbnb in Queenstown. So you stay a little bit further away and you commute in. That's what Jesus and his disciples are doing. They're staying on a town called Bethany, which is just over the hill from Jerusalem, and every day they, they trek into Jerusalem. And this is three days in the life of the disciples and three days in the life of Jesus. And Mark, who is writing this gospel, he links these stories together by using that formula. So it's trying to show these are, these are connected stories. I think that these three days tell one story, which is about the authority of the king. And if you're taking notes, that's a good title for my message, The Authority of the King. He is heralded as a king when he comes into Jerusalem, but the next three days unpack what that means. On the first day, after disciples arrange a donkey, Jesus enters Jerusalem to a standing ovation while riding the donkey on Palm Sunday. And briefly, he does some sort of reconnaissance in the temple. And then, because it's evening, he leaves. The next day, Jesus heads in to finish some business. After the rising of the sun, on the way to the Bethany, Jesus stops, stops for, for the sort of drive-through breakfast at a fig tree, hoping to get, you know, a bit of meal to sustain them on the road. And then he walks in and he uh, cleanses the temple, just like he curses the fig tree. And then he complains about the need for genuine, heartfelt prayer. He wants the people's hearts. And then he leaves Jerusalem at the end of the day. On the third day, Jesus and his disciples are likewise traveling back into Bethany and, they, and Peter sees the fig tree and he says, oh, it's already withered. This isn't just kind of autumn coming and wiping away the leaves. It's, no, it's one day later and the, free, the tree is withered just as Jesus had said. And Jesus encourages the people to be genuine in prayer. And then, on the final day, Jesus gets into an argument with some very grumpy Pharisees. And they question Jesus' authority and kingship in their hearts. So you see, the whole story is tied together by this thread of kingship. Kingship at the start, here is the king, the son of David. And then kingship at the end, what is your authority? There is one question in this chapter. 
And that's the question of Jesus' authority. The question for us as readers of Mark's gospel is, will we give Jesus the authority only of lip service? Or will we give him authority in our hearts? That is the point that John Mark, the author of this gospel, I think is trying to make by putting these stories close together. Will you praise him in the crowd when it's easy? Or will you believe on him in your heart when it's hard and as an individual? This story is sort of like a play. It's three acts in the life of Jesus, and it tells one story over three days in three acts. Here, I think, is the main point. He, Jesus, is the king now. Like Jerusalem's religious leaders, we must decide whether or not we acknowledge his authority in our hearts. I'll say that again. This is the main point. And so if you want to kind of cheat, you're planning to sleep the rest of the message, here is the main point, and I want you to hear it. Jesus is king now, not just of the people of Jerusalem, but of the whole universe, and we must acknowledge his authority in our hearts. That's the main message, and I think my outline is going to be really simple. Three days in the life of Jesus. In day one, we consider the triumphal entry. In day two, we consider the fig tree and the temple, which are really just one story. Jesus curses the fig tree and he cleanses the temple. And the fig tree is an illustration of the temple. And then day three, the religious leaders and their hearts. So three days in the life of Jesus. Day one, the triumphal entry. Day two, the fig tree and the temple. Day three, the religious leaders and their hearts. To save time this morning, I'm not going to read every passage, every part of this. I'm not going to comment on everything. If you have some questions something in your mind that you can't get out of your mind, feel free to ask me afterwards and I'll give it my best shot. I can't promise I know the answer, but I can promise I'll try. So let's dive into the first day together. Day one, the triumphal entry. You can see that in verses 1 to 11. We've already learned a good bit about this story in some of the songs that we've sung today. But here's an overview of what happens. Jesus has been traveling with his disciples along Galilee to the Jordan. And then he gets to a place called Jericho, And from Jericho, he takes a kind of hard right turn and he pivots to go up into the mountains to Jerusalem, just like sort of Alana and I, when we were driving up last night at about 7 p.m. We drove up from Milton through the ranges and mountains. So you go through Manuka Gorge, you probably go through some other gorge, and then you go through Roxburgh Gorge to get to Alexandra. It's a bit like that ascent when you go from Jericho to Jerusalem. You're climbing up through mountains and it takes a number of days. So... For all of chapter, uh, chapter 10, that's what Jesus and his disciples are doing. They're just walking along the road to Jerusalem. And then they arrive at the Mount of Olives, which is set up on a valley opposite, opposite Jerusalem, kind of like how Bendigo is opposite Mount Pisa. And so it's, it's the other side of the valley. And that's where Jesus spies out the land, and he encourages the disciples to go ahead and find a divinely appointed donkey. And the disciples do just that. The word there is colt in your Bible, but it's just a young donkey. We we use the word colt for horses probably only, but in Jesus' day, the, the word also carried over to donkeys as well. And the point of the donkey is to fulfill a prophecy in Zechariah. Zechariah 9, 9 says this, A king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. And immediately, it seems like the people respond well to Jesus entering the town. 
they chopped down palm branches and they spread it before Jesus and they lured him. Some people run ahead of him and shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They rolled out a red carpet for the royal king. And it seems like Jerusalem is primed and ready for Jesus. How do we respond to this? If you were a disciple of Jesus, or if I was a disciple of Jesus, I think I'd be really pumped at this point. Jesus' ministry has been a series of him not getting the recognition that he deserves. He's not received the attention that he deserves. And if you're his friend, you'd be wanting him to, you know, to go out there and finally become a celebrity. And here you are, you're entering Jerusalem, and they've prepared a rock concert. Or maybe you want to think of an orchestra, you know. They've created an orchestra to celebrate Jesus entering the town. And he's lauded on recognition of how significant he is. But that's not the story that Jesus tells. You see, Jesus goes into the heart of the city, to the temple in Jerusalem, and he does some looking around, and he realizes it's not, not as, everything is not well with this town and with these people's hearts. He doesn't just want your lip service. He wants your heart. He wants to transform your heart, and he wants you to give it to him. And that is the central message of Jesus, is that he is able to do that because he is both king and saviour. So he cares about the heart level. And I think that's really significant. Some of the things you guys have done this week are kind of looking at both of these two things. It's not that the outward lip service is bad, right? So this afternoon you guys are going to go put up a cross up on the hill above the clock tower. And that's going to remind people of an obvious outward sign. Here is the sign of Christianity, of the sign of what Jesus has done. And that's good and well. But unless it goes along with something like Central Way, right, where you're meeting individual people and you're challenging them and you're showing them what the kingship of Jesus means in your life, that Jesus can have my one Saturday because I'm going to put my life on the line to obey King Jesus and I'm going to follow him. And you have the opportunity to share with your mouth with those people, right? There's relationships there with a Christian. Individually, you're able to challenge them in their hearts, with the authority of Jesus and what that means in your life and what it could mean in their lives. And that's so important to have both of those kind of ministries operating together. And so I really encourage you. You guys are doing well as a church and I want to encourage you to do that kind of thing more. The central way is really helpful and, you know, it is hard to sacrifice a Saturday, especially if it starts to feel like it's just two weeks of work in a row. But it's worth it because Jesus is a king and he is worth it. You are not your own, but you belong both body and soul to your saviour, Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's, that's really inspiring. Um, and, and so they think they'll find some food, and they get there, and there is no food there for them. And so Jesus curses the fig tree, not because he's angry at a fig tree, but because he wants to illustrate that he wants the temple to be ready to receive its king. And so there's no fruit available. You can imagine Jesus' disappointment, right? When I was a kid... Uh, one of the things that we would do on a summer afternoon after church is my family would drive around in a big minivan with five kids and we would hunt around all the local spots looking for the local fruit trees on public land. And we'd go with the, you know, plastic shopping bags aiming to get them stuffed full of apricots and pears and apples and black boy peaches. Every now and then, though, you'd, you know, you'd get to one and you'd realise, ah, oh, some other nasty family from church has got there first. <laughs> Very sophisticated people in Geraldine, as you can imagine, aiming to get bottles of canned fruit. And it would be particularly disappointing if that was an apricot tree or a black boy peach tree, because I used to love to have those on my wheat bix. 
Unfortunately, that is this disappointment that Jesus and his disciples experienced. The fig tree promised to deliver fruit with its lips, with its leaves, but its heart was empty. It didn't have fruit. And that's what Jesus wants. He wants Christians to be a fruit, not just to be leafy and full of green leaves, but to be full of fruit and to be a fruit as people of God. Jesus wants the temple to be a place of prayer and of genuine faith. So he's not casting out the money changers because he's anti-business. He's not just like, oh, I don't like capitalism and this is a big protest against that. Business is appropriate in a, in a meeting, sorry, in a marketplace, but business is not appropriate in a place of prayer. And so Jesus casts out the money changers from the temple, and that's the meaning of what is going on. As we think about how to apply that to our own lives, though, I think it's a little bit different for us as a New Testament church. Peter says in his letter, you are living stones being built together into a dwelling place for God. And so the church is the temple of God in the New Testament. The church as in the people, the gathered people of God. We are the temple. As we come together, the temple is built in our meetings. The building isn't the place of the temple. And so it's appropriate to do whatever you want to keep the lights on here. And as a way for ministry so that the people who are the church may encounter opportunities for ministry. I think that's how we could apply that best. It's not that we shouldn't have um, meetings and public things here. That's actually really good. It gives an opportunity for the church to encounter people from the community. So the church, the building of the church, is very different from the temple because we are the church and Jesus cares about your heart. He cares about what you do on a Sunday. He cares that you're here and that you're not secretly um, working overtime to make all this extra money. If your job requires you to work on Sunday, that's fine. But he wants you to have your heart in the right place and to prioritize the worship of God in your heart. So that is the meaning of the fig tree and the meaning of the temple. Okay, so day number three. As we move on, let's consider day number three, the religious leaders and their hearts. The events of the third day operate as a kind of resolution and a conclusion to the saga of the last two days. Jesus passes by the fig tree and his disciples point out that it's already withered just one day after he had cursed it. And then he encourages the people to be genuine in prayer, to have faith, to believe in their hearts that they will have the things that they pray for. So you see the temple, not prayerful. And then when they see the cursed fig tree, Jesus says, be genuine in prayer. You see, Jesus' ambition is to have people who worship him in spirit and in truth. The songs that we sing are, f- are fantastic, but he wants you to worship not just in truth, not just from your lips, but from your heart, with your spirit. And that is what God is after. If you're an unbeliever here, you might not even think that you have a spirit. You might not even think that you have something inside of you. But Jesus knows about it and he cares about it and he wants it to be his because he is the king and that is what's best for you. And we see here, the question of the heart is brought to the fore by these people, the religious leaders. The main focus is on the religious leaders and their hearts in this last day. Their hearts are the exact opposite of the kind of genuineness and sincerity that Jesus is looking for. Having heard, we heard already they feared 
the people and they wanted to destroy Jesus and get rid of him. And we know, being Christians, that that eventually happens a few days later in Good Friday when Jesus is killed. But they haven't got there yet. Having heard how Jesus cleansed the temple and drove out the money changers, the religious leaders are outraged. And they find him again in the temple and they confront him asking, by what authority do you do these things? They're looking for a fight and they're looking to trap him. You can see that. You Maybe you've been in this situation before as well, where someone engages you in conversation and you know that their real agenda isn't the truth. Their real agenda is a trap. Their real agenda is to, to trip you up in your words and to spin them in such a way that they can twist it and trap you. And that's what is going on here. These people don't have good hearts of genuine worship. They have bad hearts. They have evil hearts and they have bad motives. And Jesus is aware. He recognizes the trap and he pivots and he asks a question back to them. He promises tit for tat. I'll answer your question if you answer my question. Let's have a look at what he asks. Was the baptism from, of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And then you see what happens in their hearts. They discussed it with one another, saying, if we say it's from heaven, they will say, why then did you not believe in him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people, for all the people held that John was really a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. They don't want to be trapped in their words, and so they lie. They say, oh, we don't know. We don't care. And then Jesus says to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you reject Jesus, Jesus rejects you. If you accept Jesus, Jesus accepts you. That's what he promises. John, the apostle John, when he writes his gospel, he says this. He came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of the will of a man, nor of the husband, but of God. And so if you receive him today, you get the right to become his child. This is a fantastic thing. You know there's nothing externally that can commend you to God? God doesn't care how many days you've gone to church. God doesn't care what kind of clothes you wear or what kind of uh, shoes you have on your feet. God doesn't care what you've done in the past. If you have a heart and you will give it to him, you can be his child. And so there is a great leveling before the foot of the cross of Jesus. You don't have to be sophisticated. You don't have to be educated. You don't have to be intelligent. You don't have to have grown up in the right town. You don't have to have grown up at the right school. You don't have to have grown up at the right side of town or the right side of the bridge out in Alexandra. If you have a heart and you will give it to him, you may be his disciple. And that is the truth of what is going on here. Jesus is looking for true worshippers who worship him in spirit and in truth. So maybe you're a person who hasn't been to church much in your life and you're still figuring out the Jesus thing. You're wise enough to come to church and you want to know what's next. My challenge to you, a really good thing to do this afternoon, could be to read the next few chapters of Mark's Gospel. Read chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 and learn about what Jesus has done for you. You see the same crowd that cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of David, eventually said, crucify him. 
They eventually cried out, crucify him. And on that tree in Golgotha, on that cross, he spread out his arms and he suffered and was rejected so that he could later accept you. Those same people who rejected him there, many of them became his disciples. Many of these Pharisees and scribes likely became his disciples after the resurrection. And that same opportunity is open to you. You may have rejected Christ time and time again. You may have rejected his claim on your life. But he is here now and he offers you forgiveness and peace and a new heart and to become a child in his family. And if you accept him, he will accept you and he will never cast you out. That is the promise of the book of Mark in chapter 11 as we looked at today. You see, Jesus is king now, not just of the people of Jerusalem, but of the whole universe. And we must acknowledge his authority in our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is truth. We thank you that we have the truth and we pray, Lord, let that truth bear fruit in our lives. We want to be the type of uh, soil that grows up and produces fruit, sometimes 30, sometimes 60, sometimes 100-fold. Please make us that kind of soil. Don't make us the kind of soil that is where the birds snatch it up or the thistles quench it out. We want to be the type of soil that responds well to your word and well to you. Thank you for being our king. Thank you that we can follow you and be your disciples. Thank you that you have made a way for us to have new hearts and to become people fit for God by your power and not by our own. We say all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.